Once again, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the Tuesday, 31st of January, 2023 episode of the Greenwich at Town for All Seasons show podcast. This weekly Greenwich, Connecticut history podcast is hosted by me. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead. I'm a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. This town is long known as the gateway to New England. The town was founded on July 18th, 1640. Since its humble beginnings, Greenwich, Connecticut has emerged as one of America's most notable and attractive communities. It's a special place that we call home. Now, whether your roots go back nearly 400 years as ours do, whether you're here to stay, just passing through, or what have you, well, we welcome you with open arms. And guess what? You're a part of our history, so I send you my congratulations. I'm so glad that you could join us for today's show. Now, the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. We've got a great show for you today, so let's not delay any further. Let's get started. Coming up on today's show. Well, we've got a great show for you today. On Greenwich in the Gilded Age, our journey will take us to Old Orchard in Belhaven, built in 1890 and designed by the architectural firm of Boring, Tilton, and Mellon. Its principal owner was Charles Arthur Moore. He was a prominent businessman whose firm manufactured machinery that was used in the construction of railroads. On the judge's corner, Judge Frederick A. Hubbard, also known as Ezekiel Lemondale, penned a piece published in 1932 about the figurehead of a clippered ship, Lancashire, and its ties to Luke Vincent Lockwood of Greenwich. On Greenwich life as it is and was a century ago, the columnist who penned so many of these stories about Greenwich history, Erwin Edwards, died. You'll hear about how he was remembered. Rest assured, my friends, we will be featuring more of his columns in future shows. On Crimes and Misdemeanors, Elizabeth Gasso, the eight year old daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Andrew Gazzo of Byram, formerly known as East Portchester, was struck and knocked down by a car driven by a young chauffeur by the name of George W. Slater on Delvin Avenue. What happened next? Well, we'll share that with you. On a much higher note, at least I think so, a century ago, a gentleman by the name of Louis Victor Eating, and I spelled that E-Y-T-I-N-G-E, pardoned from a prison in Arizona after serving 16 years of a light sentence, was married to Pauline L. Diver at the Pickwick Arms Hotel. How did that come about? Well... <laughs> I'll let you know. It was the culmination of an eight-year romance that was conducted by mail. The gentleman turned around and told the reporter who was um, writing about all of this, quote, I have accepted the verdict of fate, and I am very, very happy to have received another life sentence, unquote. On Greenwich before 2000, we'll travel back in history to the years 1888 and 1899, as covered in that book. Also, you'll hear a follow-up story um, of one that was featured in last week's show about the, um, it was a controversial installation of a pole by the Connecticut Line Power Company in the town's second oldest cemetery in Coscob. In 1927, $5,000 was raised for temporary new classrooms for the Edgewood School, and in January 1914, Mrs. Ernest Thompson Seaton was asked to take charge of a committee, quote, for the artistic arrangements of a women's suffrage parade, 
to be held in Hartford in May of that year. Also, our listeners in Byram are no doubt very familiar with the Metro North Railroad Bridge that passes over North Water Street. Even 100 years ago, calls were made for a, quote, light that should be suspended on either side of the railroad bridge, unquote, since trucks and other vehicles would occasionally, quote unquote, come to grief. You, I think you could visualize what that would mean. Also, World War I veteran William H. Teffrey told the story of a, quote, ragged hole through the center of a mirror in his possession and how it got there. Very colorful story. There's lots to see, lots to do, and lots to learn about the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. My friends, you have come to the right place to learn about the history of this town that we call home, one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. We're going to have all this and more as our history continues to unfold. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Site Design Associates is an award-winning landscape architecture studio located in historic Greenwich, Connecticut and founded in 1979 by its principal, Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect. Committed to a unique multidisciplinary approach to professional landscape design and development, Site Design Associates' ambition is to foster a sense of excellence that is second to none from analysis to construction and maintenance with 35 years of experience, coupled with a sense of place, purpose, and history. Now, Peter F. Alexander is a member of the American Society of Landscape Architects. He's a graduate of the Rhode Island School of Design and a member of the American Planning Association. My friends, Peter F. Alexander and Site Design Associates is the title sponsor of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast, and we are very grateful for the support that we receive. You can learn more at sitedesignassociates.com. You can call Peter F. Alexander at 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. Or you can email him at peterA at sitedesignassociates.com. The Long Island Sound Institute understands that a bright environmental future relies on brilliant ideas and methods. A special initiative by Site Design Associates, LISI is a community of diverse professionals, researchers, academics, and concerned citizens, harnessing the powers of imagination and innovation to achieve the ecological balance and conservation of Long Island Sound for present and future generations. It aims to use modern planning and the implementation of new technologies to conserve Long Island Sound, looking forward to a bright future of effective leadership. To learn more about the Long Island Sound Institute, go online to lisistudy.info or call 203-869-8632. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is a tribute to those Americans who served the nation on the international scene as ambassadors in the American diplomatic corps. There has never been a museum specifically dedicated to ambassadors. The museum's founders and supporters are committed to achieving its educational mission 
with programs and events for high school and college students. My friends, you can learn more by contacting the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, by calling 203-869-8632, right to Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831, or go online at amusa.info. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor his Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. Victorian Summer, the historic houses of Belhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut by Matt Bernard is an incredible compilation of Belhaven's rich history from the Gilded Age. Featuring beautiful photos and ephemera, the book is the culmination of decades of work and research, taking its readers to the development of Belhaven Park during America's Gilded Age. Well, on today's show, we are going to visit Old Orchard, thanks to Victorian Summer, the historic houses of Belhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut, by Matt Bernard. Now, the principal owner of the this house was Charles A. Moore. It was built in 1890. The address of this house, it still stands today, at, is at 17 Field Point Drive in Belhaven. The architect was the firm of Boring, Tilton, and Mellon, and it was altered in 1900. And the story goes as follows. Among the great Gilded Age manufacturers who spent summers in Belhaven was Charles Arthur Moore, who lived from 1845 to 1914, whose firm, Manning, Maxwell, and Moore, made machinery used in the construction of railroads. Moore is an intriguing footnote in American folklore for having hired the famous glutton Diamond Jim Brady as an early salesman for his firm. Brady's prodigious eating may have begun with Moore's instruction to wine and dine clients with Mary Abandon. <laughs> Tales of Diamond Jim's appetite are legendary and emblematic of Gilded Age excess. According to John Mariarney, Author of America Eats Out, Diamond Jim would typically consume a dinner of three dozen oysters, a dozen crabs, six or seven lobsters, terrapin soup, and a steak followed by, quote, a tray full of pastries and two pounds of bonbons, unquote. Brady had a parallel appetite for jewels, hence the diamond, quote, unquote, sobriquet. <laughs> Moore was among the first Brooklynites to build a country house in Belhaven. In 1891, he hired the New York firm Boring, Tilton, and Mellon to design a simple but elegant colonial revival on a two-acre site at the top of Glenwood Drive across from the Green. The cost of the house was $14,000, and the address was 17 Field Point Drive. This was among the firm's earliest commissions. Edward Tippincott Tilton, who lived from 1861 to 1933, and William, oh, I hope I pronounced this right, 
Al Kipfron Boring, uh, who lived from 18, 1859 to 1937, formed their partnership that year after having studied together at the Le École des Beaux-Arts and worked together at the esteemed offices of McKim, Mead, and White. And in parentheses, it says... Nathan C. Mellon practiced with Boring and Tilton from 1891 to 94 and separately designed three cottages in Belhaven. While working on their Belhaven projects, which included the casino, Boring, Tilton, and Mellon designed the Hotel Colorado in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, based closely on the Villa de Medici in Rome. Later in the decade, Boring and Tilton submitted the winning design for the new U.S. immigration station at Ellis Island. The landmark brick and limestone structure, with its four French Renaissance towers, still stands on the once-teeming island in the Hudson River. Boring and Tilton dissolved their partnership in 1904, but continued to share offices in Manhattan. Tilton went on to become one of America's greatest designers of public libraries, usually in the Beaux-Arts style of shimmering white marble with great arched windows and gorgeous sculptural detail. The Springfield Central Library in Massachusetts is a fine example. Boring went on to design luxury apartment houses in Manhattan, among other buildings, and later served as dean of Columbia University's School of Architecture. Moore's Old Orchard had a hipped roof, a wide veranda extending across the front of the house, ending in a porte couture with an almost perfectly symmetrical design, with bays projecting from either side of the front door, as was common with many colonial revivals of the era. Little flourishes, however, gave, way, gave away the architect's classical training. The curved pediment over the front steps, the gabled pediment over the porte couture, and the paired oval windows on the second-story facade. In 1900, Moore commissioned Boringham Tilton to update and enlarge the cottage, almost doubling its size. Quote, the old mansion has been completely transformed until there is little semblance to the original, unquote, quote noted the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, which always took a lively interest in wealthy Brooklynites and their summer estates. The chief, alter, the chief alteration was the replacement of the old hip roof with a capacious gambrel roof. It gave Old Orchard a full third floor and a pleasantly imposing height. Quote, raised another story, unquote, the Eagle went on, quote, this country house will be equaled by few on the Connecticut shore, unquote. At the center of the roof was a new dormer with an enormous swan pediment, perhaps the house's signature feature. It continues to draw the eye in the present day. The new details, a roofline balustrade, wooden coins to accentuate the corners, and dentral trim at the cornices, all tended to be ornate. The new exterior clapboards, were painted a light silvery gray, replacing the less formal yellow favored in Belhaven a decade earlier. On the grounds were extensive gardens, a large carriage house, a barn, and a gambrel-roofed playhouse, which is styled like the main house. This was the enchanting domain of the youngest Moore daughter, Elise, or Elsie, who was 11 in 1900. Seven years, late, seven years later at Old Orchard, 
Elsie married the 46-year-old Don Marino Torlonia, an Italian nobleman whose titles included, I hope I pronounce this properly, Prince of Sufotella Sessi, Duke of Poli, and Duke of Gardengonolia. <laughs> I know I have that wrong. According to his New York Times obituary, Torlonia was a descendant of Ludovico Svolza, the patron of Leonardo da Vinci, who commissioned The Last Supper. In the 18th and, early, and, and 19th centuries, the Torlonios, a family of bankers, compounded uh, their wealth by administering the finances of the Vatican. Less auspiciously, Don Marino became a close friend of rising political star Benito Mussolini. Oh my. As for poor Elsie, quote, because of her father's wealth, she became popularly known as the quote-unquote dollar duchess. Oh my. But the reputedly beautiful Elsie and Don Marino did give Belhaven its own Downton Abbey style, quote-unquote, union, in which the rich American woman goes abroad to live in the titled man's ancestral palace. The Moore family tree grew very interesting due to this. One of Elsie's daughters married American tennis great Frank Shields, the grandfather of actress Brooke Shields. Another son married Infanta Beatrice, daughter of King Alfonso the Thirteenth uh, of Spain. Divided by age, culture, and perhaps politics, Elsie and Don Marino divorced in 1928. A Brooklyn Daily Eagle headline the following year read, quote, Duchess Trelonia dickers with Mussolini for palace, unquote. Oh my, again. The Moore's stateside family tree was no less remarkable. Moore's son, Eugene, married into another Belhaven family, Titanic survivor Margaret Graham, who lived just down the street at Otter Rocks. And if you have the book, uh, Victorian Summer, you could refer to uh, or page over to uh, page 46. And his son, Charles Jr., a world explorer who succeeded his father. A chairman of Manning, Maxwell, and Moore was the grandfather of actress Glenn Close, making actresses Brooke Shield and Glenn Close cousins. The Moores also owned Bella Vista Farm at the top of Round Hill Road at John Street. As an adult, Eugene and his wife eventually moved to the farm and added on to the original colonial farmhouse, expanding it into a beautiful Victorian manor overlooking the sound. Starting in 1923, the portion of the farm that later was developed as Moreland Drive became the site of the Round Hill Highland Games. The game's origin goes back to the days when Charles Moore allowed his many Scottish-born workers to hold a 4th of July picnic on the grounds. The location of the games has changed over the years, but today the event, which draws clans from all over the country, is still held over 93 years later in Lakeville, Connecticut. As with many cottages that survived the transition from summer home to year-round residence, Old Orchard's covered piazza, which ran the length of the southern elevation, was removed, a victim of ongoing expensive maintenance demands, along with year-round occupants' yearnings for more natural light setting or getting into the residence. The removal of the piazza and porcature left the look of the house somewhat unanchored and top-heavy. In the 1990s, during a renovation and partial restoration, the clapboard siding was removed and replaced by shingles. The lot was subdivided after World War II, creating a flag lot 
on a separate acre in the rear of the carriage house and barn converted to a new residence. We also have the following included in this section of Victorian summer. It's about the late Charles A. Moore. The story goes as follows. Mr. Charles A. Moore was born in 1845 and died in 1914 on his way to Italy. He had long been identified with good government in Greenwich as well as being a prominent figure in national politics. Always a hard worker, not only in business affairs, but also in the interests of the nation. He was, a cl he was a close friend of President McKinley, who at one time offered him the secretaryship of the Navy. His business was organized under the name of Manning, Maxwell, and Moore, Incorporated, and while he is associated chiefly in the minds of the public with the great iron and machinery industry of the country, he was identified with many analogous things. Mrs. Charles A. Moore still resides in Belhaven, but spends considerable of her time abroad with her married daughter, Donna Elsie Tart Tartlonia, in Rome. Mr. Moore is survived by three other children, Mrs. Colby M. Chester, Jr., whose husband is now a major in the National Army, and two sons, Charles Arthur Moore, Jr., who resides on the large Bella Vista farm at Round Hill, and who is now a lieutenant in the Heavy Artillery, USA, and Eugene Maxwell Moore, who has entered the hospital corps as an officer. The public service of the family is a fitting tribute to the public spirit of the father. Victorian Summer, the historic houses of Belhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut by Matt Bernard is available for borrowing purposes through the Greenwich Library system. You can go to your favorite or nearest branch of the Greenwich Library, or you can go online to greenwichlibrary.org. Well, my friends, why not consider purchasing a copy of this wonderful book, about Belhaven. It's a great book and it's one I strongly recommend. You can purchase a copy at the Greenwich Library's Museum Store where members enjoy a discount. Visit GreenwichHistory.org. You can also call 203-869-6899 or if you wish, visit your favorite book vendor. kept secret in historic Greenwich, Connecticut is a marvelous destination with an even more extraordinary mission. Voted Best Coffee Shop in Greenwich by the readers of Greenwich Magazine and honored with the Community Impact Leader Award by the Connecticut Restaurant Association in 2022, Coffee for Good invites you to be a part of a magical story of a restored historic treasure, a destination that inclusively brings people together. Thanks to a unique nonprofit partnership between Abelis and the Second Congregational Church. You'll be instantly drawn to the warmth and the historical ambiance when you enter the 1858 Italianate-styled Solomon Mead House at 48 Maple Avenue on the campus of the Second Congregational Church. Serving coffee, teas, an assortment of delectable goodies and more, Coffee for Good employs and trains people with special needs. Through a self-sustaining inclusive platform, trainees acquire the skills and confidence they need to thrive in the community. Open daily 
daily, Monday through Saturday, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. except Sundays, Coffee for Good offers you free Wi-Fi, free parking, indoor and outdoor seating year-round in a relaxed setting with a vibe all its own, a popular destination for informal business meetings, gatherings, and a fantastic study spot, too. Take it from me, my friends. The word about Coffee for Good has gotten around. After all, its success is driven by a never-ending commitment to excellence and inclusion. Coffee for Good is located at 48 Maple Avenue on the campus of the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill National Historic District on the National Register of Historic Places. Open daily, 8 a.m. through 6 p.m., except Sundays. You can learn more by going to coffeeforgood.org. The First Congregational Church of Old Greenwich invites you to enjoy two free self-guided online history tours. These are really fantastic. The church was founded in 1665, incidentally by my ancestors, among others. One tour is of the church cemetery, the one that is located off of Sound Beach Avenue. The other is a tour of the wonderful stained glass windows of the church located in Old Greenwich. You know, they tell quite a story about the influences that culminated in driving some people from Europe to America. And in the chapel, they tell the story of the landing of the settlers here in the year 1640 and the development of the first church in Greenwich, Connecticut. You can learn more by going to the First Congregational Church's website, which is fccog.org. When you see the menu at the top, go to About Us and then look under the items under Our History, and you will see our self-guided audio tours, and um, you can look at those from your smartphone, from your laptop, whatever the case may be. I think you'll enjoy it. Well, my friends at the Greenwich Historical Society have some great news. A new exhibit is on its way, and it's one that you really need to come and see. Sports More Than Just a Game will open on March 8th, 2023, and it will close on September 3rd, 2023. It's a dynamic exhibition of the local history of sporting culture, fandom, and celebrity that explores how Greenwich, Connecticut, and its surrounding communities broke boundaries, tested their limits, and found common ground through athletic achievement. Again, this is sports more than just a game. That's the next terrific exhibit at the Greenwich Historical Society, and you've really got to come and see it. Now, to learn more about this, please go to GreenwichHistory.org, or you could also call for more information at area code 203-869-6899. The Greenwich Historical Society presents a student-curated exhibit highlighting personal family stories and artifacts gathered as part of the My Story, Our Future project, a a collaborative initiative organized by the India Cultural Center and the Asian and Asian American Studies Institute at the University of Connecticut. The project aims to collect and contribute stories about South Asian American youth identity in Connecticut in support of the state's mandated K-12 Asian American Pacific Islander curriculum. Students participate 
Pence spent the fall of 2022 learning to interview family members on their experiences as immigrants to North America from South Asia. The exhibit will be on view in the Historical Society Museum lobby from February 13th to the 26th. And you can learn more about My Story, Our Future, South Asian American Youth Voices of Connecticut by going online to GreenwichHistory.org. You are listening to the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, Landscape Architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. Judge Frederick Augustus Hubbard was a lawyer, writer, and gifted storyteller. His remarkable life spanned the end of the 19th century and into the first third of the 20th century here in Greenwich, Connecticut. He wrote under the pseudonym Ezekiel Lemondale. No idea where that came from. <laughs> and he did that when he was writing about what was called or what he called rather Cracker Barrel stuff. He did that through his column, The Judge's Corner. Years ago, Frank Nicholson collected Judge Hubbard's published columns, organized them in compendium form as a terrific book that I recommend to you called Greenwich History, The Judge's Corner, 150 Vintage Newspaper Columns by Frederick A. Hubbard, selected, edited, and indexed by Frank Nicholson. Well, on today's show, we are going to feature column number 127 that was published in the Greenwich Press on February 18th, 1932. This is, of course, by Judge Frederick A. Hubbard, and the title of this article is The Figurehead of the Clippered Ship Lancashire in New York Museum Recalls the Damon and Pythias of Greenwich. I have to admit, this did catch my eye. I had no idea what he was talking about. Uh, so um, let's discover together. All right. Damon and Pythias were two familiar characters in ancient days. Authorities disagree as to how the latter name should be spelled. The Encyclopedia Britannica states that it is a mistake to call it anything but Pintius, and that is spelled P-H-I-M-T-I-A-S. By common parlance, however, Pythias, and that is spelled P-Y-T-H-I-A-S, is easier to pronounce, and therefore, in this article, we have adopted that spelling. Damon and Pythias were indeed fast friends. Without the romantic story of the ancients, we have found, to some extent, their counterpart in modern times. Ask a forlorn little chap of eight or ten as he strolls in an aimless fashion, quote, where is the other fellow, unquote, he will brace up and tell you that, quote, his mother won't let him out, unquote, there is always another fellow. <laughs> Fishing, trapping, swimming, and skating as boys, and later as men of affairs, there is apt to be the Damon and Pythias of modern times. This suggestion comes to us because of a report 
that last week a young lady of Greenwich discovered in the New York Museum at 5th Avenue and 103rd Street the wooden figure of a woman labeled figurehead of the clippered ship Lady Lancashire, loaned by Luke Vincent Lockwood, unquote. To many, this would have no local significance, but to every student of American history, it is of more than usual interest. It far surpasses in importance the cigar store Indian so common in the early 19th century, but now quite obsolete. The figurehead represents a period in the history of the United States more important than any other of equal length. From 1834 to 1869, the country was emerging from the days of infancy and assuming a stalwart nationality, and the clippered ships had much to do with such transformation. The Lady Lancashire was one of those world-girdling vessels that made every foreign port familiar with the Stars and Stripes. Those were the halcyon days of such great shipping merchants as A. A. Lowe, William H. Aspinwall, Moses H. Grinnell, and Spofford and Tylestam. Their ships hailed from New York, Boston, Salem, Newburyport, and less important American ports. They laid the foundations of, st of substantial fortunes, now in some cases exhausted, but frequently enjoyed by the great-grandchildren of the founders. Any ship laden with American goods that could make the equator in 16 days and Australia in 100 more brought a fortune to its owners on every trip. It was a proud occupation to walk the quarter-deck as master of such a vessel, they were not such skippers as one reads about in present-day works of fiction. Any of them might easily have been mistaken as they walked along Wall Street for successful merchants or professional men, and they were welcome guests at the fireside of refined and luxurious homes, where a more intimate acquaintance disclosed a worldwide knowledge of foreign lands. Such a man was the grandfather of Luke Vincent Lockwood, the commander of the Lancashire, William L. Lyon. It is no wonder that Mr. Lockwood so highly regards this woman of wood that he has placed it in a museum as a place of safety and as a means of stimulating enthusiasm of future generations for the famous clipper ship era. But he wasn't always but he hasn't always had the family figurehead. Possibly for 10 or 15 years, it has stood among the blooms of his rose garden at Riverside. It has shed the rain in winter, but it is now more than 75 years since it has felt the acrid brine of old ocean. When the writer was a boy 70 years ago, it graced the top of a secular summer home or grape arbor on the front lawn of the home of Judge Augustus Meade, the house possibly with some additions being Homestead Hall on the Field Point Road. That was the trail to Round Island Beach. We never want, we never went alone as we always walked. The bicycle was yet to be invented. Summer afternoons and vacation times were long enough without delay beyond the twilight. But as we labored up the hill, filled with lassitude from a two-hour swim, the ghostly figure of that wooden lady in her white robes was the first object in view as we climbed over the stone wall into the road. 
And now comes the story of Damon and Pythias. Captain Lyon had a close friend in Judge Mead. Among the relics of the past in a certain house in the village is a leather-covered leather wooden box with a brass ring at the top and a dozen brass nails found in the ends. It is a real antique. Within, pasted against the sides, are strips of newspaper dated more than a century ago. In that box are papers that reveal the Damon and Pythias relationship between these two old-time distinguished citizens of Greenwich. Captain Lyon's signature is at the end of a confidential paper addressed to, quote, Friend Augustus, unquote. It bears the date October 2nd, 1857, on the eve of his last voyage. He was then 49 years of age, retired for nine years. During that period, he had abandoned the sea, living in luxury in his Putnam Avenue house, where the Pickwick Theater now stands and especially interested in the construction of the New York and New Haven Railroad, of which he was an initial director and later during the Schuyler fraud troubles, one of the managing directors. Being a large stockholder of New Haven's stock, he lost considerable and determined to cover such losses by a final voyage. There is something in the tone of the paper addressed to his friend, Augustus, suggestive of a premonition that he would never return alive. He died of yellow fever in New Orleans the following summer, and his first mate brought the Lancashire into the port of New York with her colors at half-mast, and Judge Meade, a part owner of the ship, settled the Lyon estate. A bronze memorial tablet by his son, the late Charles O. Lyon, is on the wall of the foyer of the Masonic Temple, that would be a 28 Hevemeyer place, and so he is not altogether forgotten. But only the recent discovery of the graceful woman of wood reminds us of those Damon and Pythias characters of nearly a century ago. You know, Frank Nicholson said of Judge Hubbard, quote, one feels after reading him that here was Greenwich's Renaissance man. He was a traveler, sportsman, epicure, observer of the contemporary scene, arborist, botanist, critic, humorist, naturalist, and oracle, a profiler of people, a recorder of events, a describer of places, even a militant protester, and a sound recorder of various aspects of Greenwich history. Well, my friends, I have great news for you. Greenwich History, The Judge's Corner, 150 vintage newspaper columns by Frederick A. Hubbard, selected, edited, and indexed by Frank Nicholson, is available to you for borrowing purposes from the Greenwich Library System. You can go to your favorite branch of the Greenwich Library or you can visit GreenwichLibrary.org. Well, my friends, Greenwich Before 2000 is a book that was an updated revised edition of another favorite history book about the town of Greenwich titled Before and After 1776, The Comprehensive Chronology of the Town of Greenwich. Now, going through the year 1999, Greenwich Before 2000 was a project 
by the Greenwich Historical Society that was made possible by the generous support and in honor of Russell S. Reynolds, Jr., another descendant of the founders of Greenwich, Connecticut, whose numerous philanthropic bequests over the years have advanced the preservation of the town's history. For that, we are very grateful. On today's show, we are going to showcase for you uh, what happened uh, in the town of Greenwich from Greenwich before 2000 in the years 1888 to and through 1889. So follow along. In 1888, in January, A.A. Marks built a sawmill on his farm, later Ole Amundsen's boatyard in Old Greenwich. He selects cut and rough shapes timber to be shipped to his New York shop where artificial limbs are finished and fitted. On February 2nd, the first issue of the Greenwich News is published by the Honorable R.J. Walsh, proprietor and Charles H. Lee, editor. From March 11th to March 12th, 1888, the Great Blizzard of 1888 hits Greenwich, leaving drifts 20 to 30 feet high. By the way, that blizzard is still um, <laughs> um, uh, remembered uh, even today in the, um, in the 21st century. Going along, the Reverend Charles Hoyt, who had been preaching at the North Greenwich Congregational Church, is a few days late for his wedding in New Jersey as a result of the storm. My goodness, could you imagine that? On May 25, 1888, the Riverside Yacht Club is founded by George Tyson and 10 friends. It is the second yacht club in Connecticut and the eighth on Long Island Sound. Frank T. Palmer, who founds Palmer Brothers, a company that manufactures telephone and electrical supplies in North Mianus. In 1901, another plant is built at Mianus and later makes gasoline engines. Going on to the year 1889 from Greenwich before 2000, the 180-year-old Davis Tide Mill at Indian Harbor is torn down. Grinding had long since diminished when the railroad embankment affected the water supply. A mission of St. Mary Roman Catholic Church is located in Glenville and named St. Paul's. The Riverside Yacht Club's first clubhouse is built on Tyson Island. It is a shingle-style building with a cupola containing a ballroom, guest rooms, a wide veranda, and locker rooms, and has stables behind. In April of 1888, the Greenwich Casino Association is chartered by Colonel H.W.R. Hoyt. Three years later, the casino building is begun on the Bellhaven waterfront for teas, annual horse shows, and other social occasions. On May 1st of 1889, sorry, the, the General Assembly establishes a court within and for Greenwich called the Borough Court, with jurisdiction of all crimes and misdemeanors. The fine limit is $150, and the jail limit is three months. In May 24th of 1889, the Greenwich Reading Room and Library Association is incorporated. And finally, on July 1st, 1889, the Indian Harbor Yacht Club is organized with a nucleus of New York men and a few from the Greenwich Yacht Club, called the, quote, Silic House Navy, unquote, because they use the Silic House as headquarters, the club consists of 60 members and 40 boats. By the way, the Silic House uh, used to be immediately next door to the, um, uh, to the Indian Harbor Yacht Club, but a few years ago that was um, demolished and a new residential building was uh, erected in its place. 
Well, that, my friends, all comes from Greenwich Before 2000. If you would like to borrow that book, it is available for that purpose from the Greenwich Library System. I would advise you to visit your nearest Greenwich Library branch, or you could go online and visit GreenwichLibrary.org. Well, it's time for Crimes and Misdemeanors. This is the segment of the show in which we observe, once again, the 125th anniversary of the founding of the Greenwich Police Department. We are reminded that not was all that not all was um, calm and serene in uh, Greenwich's uh, history. That um, unfortunate things happened, including crime. Today's uh, story comes from the year 1919, January 31st of that year, to be exact. This was featured in the Greenwich News and Graphic on that day, and it goes as follows. The headline reads: "Auto knocks girl down, young chauffeur fined $25 for reckless driving." And the story goes as follows. Elizabeth Gasso, the eight-year-old daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Andrew Gasso of 273 Delavan Avenue, East Portchester, which we know today, of course, to be Byram, was struck and knocked down by an automobile owned by Albert Zeltner, a Portchester butcher on Delavan Avenue last Saturday afternoon, sustaining slight abrasions about the head and bruises. She was taken to the United Hospital in the Zeltner car, which was operated by George W. Slater, aged 18, an employee of the market. Slater passed a trolley car, which was standing alongside the switchbox on Delavan Avenue, where the single track merges into double tracks. He shot by on the wrong side, went up on the sidewalk, knocked off and veered across the street after hitting the girl, and before his car came to a standstill, he had gone a distance of 60 feet from the point where the girl was struck. Policeman McGinty placed him under arrest on a charge of reckless driving. Assessor Frank I. Palmer, who had an interest in Slater, made a plea for him in court. In the opinion of the court, he lost his head for the time being and operated the car in a reckless manner. He was fined $25 and costs. In a class by itself, the Greenwich Historical Society's museum store at 47 Strickland Road in Coscob is the discerning shopper's destination for unique accessories and gifts. I've got great news for you. The annual museum store's winter sale is on. Enjoy discounts up to 50% off from January 16th through the 31st. The museum store reflects the richness of Greenwich, Connecticut's history. You're invited to browse the latest arrivals. Enjoy convenient online shopping and pickup, ample parking, and complimentary gift wrapping, too. Open Monday through Saturday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. and weekends noon to 4 p.m. Located at 47 Strickland Road in Coscob, learn more and visit the online store at Greenwich History 
www.greenwichhistorical.org. On February 14, 2023, the Greenwich Historical Society will partner with the Byram Schubert Public Library and Greenwich Academy to host a local transcribathon as part of a nationwide celebration of Douglas Day, marking the birth of Frederick Douglass. Douglas Day is an annual program organized by the Center for Black Digital Research and Zooniverse, in which thousands of people gather to help create new and freely available resources for learning about black history. A different collection of black history is featured each year, and the Douglas Day Transcribathon helps create new digital resources for African American history. All materials created are made free and open to all. Douglas Day 2023 will be dedicated to transcribing the enriching papers of Mary Ann Shad Carey, who lived from 1823 to 1893, one of the earliest black women to edit a newspaper, serve as a Civil War recruiter, attend law school, and much more. Douglas Day organizers are partnering, partnering with the Archives of Ontario, Libraries and Archives Canada, and many others to present newly digitized collections from Shad Carey's long, remarkable life. Well, my friends, the Greenwich Historical Society invites you to visit its new online resource guide for Indigenous history. It's a curated selection of databases, primary sources, and educators' resources, sorry, and information about collections at local institutions in Fairfield County, Connecticut. Featuring a native land digital interactive map, book lists, local artifacts, and links to tribal nation websites, the guide is a valuable starting point for research and further learning about indigenous history for a broad audience. The Greenwich Historical Society hopes that everyone from students to teachers to seasoned historians will find these resources useful and informative. Built as a living resource, the site will continue to evolve and change as additional information and perspectives are added. The Greenwich Historical Society welcomes your input and feedback as part of this ongoing process. You're invited to visit greenwichhistory.org forward slash digital dash archives. On today's Greenwich Life As It Is and Was, I'm going to tell you about the death of, um, of Erwin Edwards. He was the founder of that, of that column. Um, we will be featuring more of his uh, writings in, in the future, I can assure you of, um, of that. But it was a little over a century ago that um, he passed away. Um, in fact, it was publicized in the Greenwich News and Graphic on December 1st, 1922, and that was the same day that it was announced that uh, William G. Rockefeller, um, uh, here of uh, Greenwich, uh, passed away too. I'm going to um, read to you Mr. Edwards, um, uh, I guess his uh, obituary, uh, as well as uh, an editorial piece uh, that appeared. So uh, on with the story, as we like to say. Well-known newspaper man and founder of Greenwich Graphic. And, of course, we're referring to Erwin um, Edwards, and according to the headline, he died at the age of 70. Relatively young, quite frankly. Erwin Edwards, well-known in newspaper circles for many years, whose health had been impaired for several months past, died last Saturday morning, aged 70 years. 
Born in Norwich, Connecticut, August 11, 1852, the son of the late Elisha and Loretta A. Strong Edwards, a prominent family in that town, Mr. Edwards and his brother Lucian B. came to Greenwich in 1881 and bought out the Greenwich Observer, a local newspaper then owned and managed by the late John K. Mead. The offices at that time being located in a small building adjoining the Elias Peck Plumbing Shop on Greenwich Avenue. Later, they moved to West Putnam Avenue into a building now occupied as a laundry on the north side of the street and later moved to a building just across the way where for about 35 years, Mr. Edwards edited and published the graphic and conducted a printing establishment. Several years ago, the graphic was sold and was consolidated with the Greenwich News and has been published under the name of the Greenwich News and Graphic. The Greenwich Graphic was really the first live newspaper in Greenwich. Lucien B. Edwards severed his connection with the paper a few years after it had been established, and Erwin Edwards continued as the sole owner and manager. Being a writer of more than usual merit and having good executive and business ability, the graphic forged ahead and soon became known as one of the leading country newspapers in this section of Connecticut. Mr. Edwards had a remarkable memory, and his historical and reminiscental, is that right, reminiscental, <laughs> I don't see that word quite often, articles were a feature of the paper. Not only did his paper here meet with success for such a long period, but his articles frequently appeared in the leading metropolitan newspapers, as well as other newspapers all over Connecticut and New York State. And since he suffered his connection with the graphic, he spent his time in writing for various publications. For several years, he had contributed special articles to the news and graphic on local historical subjects under the heading, quote, Greenwich Life as it is and was, unquote, which have been read with much interest as they have dealt for the most part with former days in Greenwich and the early residents of the township, which appealed not only to the older men and women in the community, but to the younger generation as well. Mr. Edwards was a man of sterling qualities, honest in all his dealings and interesting conversationalist. He was frequently consulted by those seeking information concerning historical matters pertaining to the town. He often related to his friends interesting incidents of bygone days, one of which occurred while he was in Washington, D.C., when the late President Garfield was shot. Mr. Edwards was stopping at, uh, at the same hotel as Goethe, the, the president's assassin, and had become acquainted with him. Hmm. While he never held any office in the town, he was always deeply interested in town affairs, and through the medium of his paper, as well as his own suggestions, he did much for the advancement and improvement of the community. He is survived by two brothers, Dr. E.J. Edwards of Patterson Avenue, formerly of the New York Sun, whose syndicate articles under the name of Holland, quote-unquote, appeared in the leading newspapers and magazines of the country, and Lucian B. Edwards, also of Greenwich. The funeral was held at Christ Episcopal Church Monday morning at 10 o'clock. Reverend Dr. M. George Thompson officiated. Interment took place at Yanti Cemetery in Norwich. Now, there's more. Um, I have an editorial that I would like to um, uh, to read to you. This appeared in the 
Greenwich News and Graphic. And um, that was also on Friday, December 1st, 1922. And it goes as follows. Erwin Edwards, who passed on last Saturday after a long and wearying illness, has been out of active newspaper work in Greenwich for so long that his passing did not awaken the interest in the community that it would have in the days of his journalistic activity. Yet among the expressions of regret are not a few tributes to his conscientious labors for the upbuilding and advancement of Greenwich. As the practical founder and longtime editor of the old Greenwich Graphic, he was consistently and tirelessly an advocate and supporter of all progressive community movements and exerted a telling influence on its upbuilding. He was earnest, aggressively so, in his treatment of matters of local interest, and once convinced that he was right, neither criticism nor argument could sway him. He was strong in his likes and dislikes, and unswervingly loyal in his friendships. Well, every year, the Greenwich Historical Society's Education Department takes on high school interns through the Greenwich High School Senior Options Program, offering qualified seniors the opportunity to undertake internships in lieu of attending classes. The Greenwich Historical Society provides students with real-world experiences to learn about subjects not normally covered in the curricula. The interns that come to the Greenwich Historical Society are interested in working at museums or in closely related fields. During their time, they assist with research, transcription, testing crafts and activities, school programs and events. Now, in June 2022, while digging a trench for a new drain pipe near the Bush storehouse, construction workers uncovered dozens of objects that had been buried under the lawn of the Greenwich Historical Society. The objects were gathered from the bottle pit, as it's called in quotes, and cleaned by members of the staff and the Greenwich Historical Society's two high school interns before being catalogued and researched. Although there are no dates, makers, marks, or obvious provenances for the objects found, there are still many things that can be learned about how people on the Greenwich Historical Society's site were living in the 18th and 19th centuries. Now, to learn more about the specific objects uncovered in the dig, you can read the History from Home blog post by Dean McKenna, IMLS Project Digitization Associate at GreenwichHistory.org. Well, my friends, Rick Hansen, local history librarian at the Greenwich Library, has announced the Heritage with Hoopla five-part series. Why not start the new year by delving into your genealogy and family history? Join us as attendees wander through Hoopla's Discovering Your Roots, an introduction to genealogy using the great courses series. The series is free to the public. No registration is required. Seating is limited to 18 and seating is made on a first come first served basis. The final workshop will be held on February 1st, 2023 and that one is Ancestors and State Records. Now again that will be on Wednesday, February 1st 2023 from 2pm to 3pm in the Learning Lab. Good genealogists always take advantage of local sources outside the courthouse 
as well, including state archives, which hold records that resulted in the administration of state laws. Here, you'll learn how to tap into the information found in original sources, such as census and military records, and derivative sources, including maps and newspapers. As with all workshops, please arrive early as the program will start right on time. Each week, attendees will watch a 30-minute genealogy video in Hoopla, followed by a discussion and practice of the techniques learned. Participants and attendees are asked, please, to bring your Greenwich Library card and PIN to access Hoopla. Program contract, uh, contact is Carla Sherman at 203-625-6560 or Rick Hansen at 203-622-7948. Again, this is the Heritage with Hoopla series at the Greenwich Library. Attendees will wander through Hoopla's Discovering Your Roots, an introduction to genealogy using the Great Source series. This is free and open to the public. There is no res- registration required. You are encouraged to come to all of the of the workshops. And again, uh, it is always first come, first served. You are listening to the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, Landscape Architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. Well, for generations, Greenwich, Connecticut has been a favored destination for couples seeking a special place to celebrate the most important day of their lives. What would that be? Well, their wedding. Whether casual or elegant, Greenwich, Connecticut has been the setting for some interesting weddings throughout its history. On today's show, we're going to go back to January 26, 1923. That's literally 100 years ago. This was a wedding that was published in the Greenwich News and Graphic on that date. And the headline of this, this is an interesting one, certainly caught my attention and maybe it will catch yours too. And the headline was his second life sentence. Now, that sounds a little bit ominous, but, you know, bear with me on this. And, um, and uh, the story goes as follows. And I hope I pronounce this properly. Um, Louis Victor Enting. And or Iting, I don't know how to pronounce this, but it is spelled E Y T I N G E. Pardoned from the Arizona prison on January 1st, that would be January 1st, 1923, after serving 16 years of a life sentence in which he became proficient as an advertising expert, was married to Miss Pauline L. Diver, one of the owners of Pote's Engraving Company. 4 and 6 Washington Place, New York, at the Pickwick Arms last Saturday. The Pickwick Arms, of course, that refers to the Pickwick Arms Hotel that once stood at the top of Greenwich Avenue uh, here in Greenwich, Connecticut. The story goes on. Justice of the Peace, J.J. O'Brien officiated. The marriage was the culmination of a romance of eight years' duration through the males. 
there's more. The couple first met in 1914 after corresponding in a business way for more than a year. And writing was, uh, has attained prominence for his sales letters, and an Eastern magazine told the story of his achievement. Miss Diver became interested and sent him an order for a series of sales letters for her firm. She always signed her initials to these letters. Iting, it is said, admittedly had impolite language in one of his letters to her, but he apologized so humbly that she decided to visit him. This was in 1914. Then Miss Diver circulated petitions urging the governor to parole him. She had already consented to become his wife as soon as he was freed. The governor, however, refused to consider the petitions, and she returned to New York to wait until more effective methods brought about his release. Iting was paroled by Governor Thomas E. Campbell as his last official act before retiring. After a brief visit to Hollywood, where some scenarios were being made, Iting went to New York to accept a position as advertising and sales promotion manager of a Fifth Avenue firm. He was met at the train by Miss Diver. An hour and a half after his arrival in New York, he was working at his desk. John B. Buffalo and Mrs. Buffalo attended the wedding in Greenwich. Again, this was at the Pickwick Arms Hotel. Mr. Buffalo is president of the firm employing Mr. Iting. Iting declared when interviewed by a reporter that this was his greatest achievement. Quote, I have accepted the verdict of fate, unquote, he said. Quote, and I am very, very happy to have received another life sentence, unquote. Well, before we close out today's show, I have a few stories that I would like to share with you. I guess we would put these under the category of odds and ends, and um, why don't we just proceed with it? My first story dates from a century ago in 1923, on January 26th. This was published. Um, those of you that live in the Byram section of Greenwich, or what used to be called East Portchester, especially along the area of North Water Street, probably know of that uh, bridge, the railroad bridge, uh, that goes over the uh, top of the um, uh, of the um, of the road, and this one uh, pertains to that. The story goes as follows: the headline is "Light at Low Bridge, High Loaded Auto Trucks Come to Grief." You can imagine what that might entail, but here are the details. That some sort of a light should be suspended on either side of the railroad bridge, which spans North Water Street, East Portchester, now today known as Byram, for the benefit of motor truck drivers is shown by the numerous accidents which have have occurred there, usually at night when tops of these machines too high to go under the bridge come to grief and damage results. Last Friday... A motor truck laden with boxes of shoes grazed the bridge, and in so doing, several boxes toppled off on into the street, apparently unbeknown to the driver. Some residents living near the bridge appropriated the shoes to their own use. One family, it is said, picked up two pairs of shoes and two pairs of ties. 
A short time ago, crates containing chickens were distributed about the highway, and when the crates broke, the prisoners, I'm assuming that that means the chickens, escaped, and the driver, unable to locate the chickens, continued on his way after the debris had been cleared away. And it is said that one or two families living in that section later caught the fowls and enjoyed a good Sunday dinner. I'll bet. These are only two of numerous accidents of a similar nature which have happened there. In many instances, the trucks get wedged under the bridge and it has taken several hours to extricate them. So even a hundred years ago, uh, the people of uh, Greenwich were uh, dealing with things like this. Um, I I've personally have seen this happen at the, um, at the Metro North Bridge at the bottom of Greenwich Avenue. It uh, caused quite a stir, and needless to say, uh, those of you who um, uh, drive on the Merritt Parkway and the Hutchinson River Parkway in uh, in New York probably know that we have had um, occasionally a truck try to uh, to drive underneath that bridge. Or, as you know, trucks are not allowed on the uh, on the Hutch or the uh, or the Merritt Parkways, but they do it anyway. And as this article says, grief results. Oh well, <laughs> so it goes. I have another story. This one really caught my eye. This is from uh, the year 1919, January 31st in the Greenwich News and Graphic. The headline on this is Shot the Mirror. And the uh, sub uh, the subheading says, Trefry, or Trefry, I, I'll go with Trefry, T-R-E-F-R-Y, heard of the shell coming in ducked in time. William H. Treffry of Old Fear Point Road, a member of Battery F, 56th Artillery, who recently returned from France, spent a few hours at his home here on Monday. He brought back a number of souvenirs, but one in particular which he prizes very highly. It is a trench mirror, in the back of which is a photograph of a young Greenwich woman sent to him overseas. There is a ragged hole through the center of the mirror, which is explained by Treffry. One day, he was shaving and had the mirror fastened to a tree. It had been quiet that day, so he thought he was safe out in the open. Suddenly, he heard the whiz of a shell and dropped to the ground. A shell had burst near him, but he was not hit. When he came to look at the mirror, however, he saw a hole clean through it, made by a fragment of the shell. The photograph was also marred. Had it not been for the fact that he heard the shell coming, he might not have lived to tell the story. And again, that is from January 31st, 1919 in the Greenwich News and Graphic. What else do we have here? Ah, yes. Now, last week, many of you heard me uh, report on a, um, a bit of history. Uh, and this is from a century ago, January 1923. And it was about a decision by the what was the Connecticut Light and Power Company, I think that would be Eversource today, to uh, construct a pole inside the what what was well used to be known as the Indian burying ground at Cascade. This is the the second oldest cemetery in Greenwich. It's the one that is located on Strickland Road on the east side of the street. It's the fenced-in area, but believe it or not, the grassy area that extends far beyond that fenced-in area has um, unmarked graves. The uh, fieldstones were removed. This is a follow-up story to the one that I reported last week, and this one uh, is uh, subtitled uh, Interesting Facts Brought uh, Out 
concerning Kasgab Cemetery. Well, it would be just Kasgab, but Kasgab Cemetery. The controversy over the erection of a pole by the Connecticut Light and Power Company 15 feet inside the old Indian burying ground, which it is not at Kasgab, has brought out some interesting facts concerning this historic cemetery which was set apart as early as 1710 by the first Benjamin Mead, one of the earliest settlers, as a burying ground. It is the first in what was originally called the Horseneck Plantation Indian Deed, 1686, and the oldest one west of the Mayanus River. The Old Mead Homestead was located on the westerly side of the road, at the end of which was a lane since cut through to the railroad and known as Laughlin Avenue. I want to stop there and mention to you that Benjamin Mead's homestead, it is the oldest of the uh, of the Mead family homes still in existence uh, today, is the saltbox-styled uh, one at the intersection of Orchard Street and Bible Street. It's over on the, um, I guess it would be the east or the uh, northern side of the uh, of the street. You can't really miss it. Anyway, on with the story. Benjamin Mead was buried in the old cemetery in 1746, as was Obadiah Mead in 1759, and Captain Sylvanus Meade, an officer of the Continental Army, it says here in 1870, but I can tell you right now that that date is uh, is definitely incorrect. Many other early ancestors of prominent families are buried there, but the markers were of common fence stone, that would be field stones, without names, and have been removed. A few years ago, there remained of the original stones only four, whose inscriptions were legible, and several had become entirely illegible. The plot originally covered not only the knoll lying east of the present road, but also to the street line on the westerly side. When the road was widened some years ago, it ran through several graves and left bones and coffins partly exposed. That much is true. I can tell I wasn't there, but uh, but it is true. Uh, it has been called the Indian Burying Ground, but there is only one Indian buried there, and that should be of interest to the community, for he was John Cuscob, the chief, who probably died around the year 1735 and from whom the hamlet takes its name. Now, there is a lot of question about where uh, the name Cuscob derives its name, either from the Indian chief or um, another one that I had heard, and this come, uh, came from former town historian, the late uh, town historian, William E. Finch, Jr., that it was originally known as Coe's Cobb. Coe, C-O-E, was a, an old family um, in that part of town, and a cob was a place where you brought it to get, get your boat fixed. <laughs> uh, and um, and the location of that place uh, is uh, actually on the opposite side of um, of the stream where uh, the Bush Holly House is uh, today, over in that area where uh, Palmer Point uh, Condominium is. So um, a lot of discussion about that, and I'm sure that in the years ahead, that will uh, definitely continue. And then my final um, etc. or um, odds and ends story is one that pertains to the Edgewood School. There used to be more independent schools in uh, the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, especially back in the latter years of the 19th uh, century into the 20th. The Edgewood School was one of them. The headline on this was Classrooms for Edgewood, $5,000 Easily Raised at a Meeting Last Night. And this was, um, the dateline on this is January 14th, 1927. Following a meeting of the Board of Trustees of the Edgewood School last Sunday to make temporary arrangements for classrooms, the school having been practically destroyed by fire last Thursday night, a decision was reached whereby the large porch of the main boarding house is to be divided into six classrooms. 
the parents of the pupils being called together in conference last evening. James H. Perkins, president of the Board of Trustees, presided. Miss E, and I love this name, Efronsine, and I'm going to spell this for you, E-U-P-H-R-O-S-I-N-E. I think you pronounce that Efronsine. I've never seen that name before, but anyway, her last name is Langley. She's the principal of the school gave an interesting and vivid account of the fire, and Mrs. Marietta Johnson, director of the school, also spoke. Dr. George E. Vincent made a strong appeal for funds to provide for six classrooms in the main porch of the boarding house, which will be enclosed, the cost of which will be about $5,000. Before the meeting adjourned, more than this amount was pledged. These classrooms will make adequate provision to carry on the schoolwork until other future plans are decided. As always, my friends, I'd like to thank you for tuning in today to the Tuesday, 31st of January, 2023 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. This podcast is hosted by me. My name is Jeffrey Bingamid, and I am a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the Gateway to New England. Greenwich, Connecticut stands today as one of America's most notable and attractive communities. It's a special place that we call home. Even some of us have called this place home for, for centuries. The Greenwich Town for All Season Show podcast is made possible by my good friends at Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Well, I invite you to write to me. You can do that, you know, by going online and sending me your thoughts in an email to Greenwich A Town for All Seasons at gmail.com. Learn more about the show, listen to past shows. You can do that for free, by the way, by going to Greenwich A Town for All Seasons.blogspot.com. Well, this month has gone by very, very quickly. Uh, I, I mean, I'm just astonished. This, um, if the year, rest of the year is going to be like this, my goodness. Who knows? Well, our next show, believe it or not, is scheduled for next Tuesday. That will be the 7th of February, 2023. I'm grateful to all of you for your interest and enthusiasm for celebrating and preserving the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. I look forward to being with you again next week. Take good care now. Bye-bye.